good morning, everyone. Uh, it's an absolute delight to be with you this morning. To, it's a privilege to share the Word of God with you. And uh, I'm going to get to that, but I just thought I'd try and introduce myself a little bit. As you can hear, I am a South African by birth. Uh, 44 years ago, I was born in Cape Town, South Africa, the son of a missionary family. Uh, grew up in that beautiful nation and uh, at age 12 got saved. Went to boarding school, went to university, and uh, went to do my national service as we had to do in those days. And at the end of my 20s, really felt God call me. I trained as a musician and um, felt the call of God in my life and started working at a church in Johannesburg, South Africa. And then about eight years ago, Helen and I felt a call of God to come to this nation. My grandfather left London in 1925. Uh, He was a missionary himself and went to Pretoria in South Africa and started a mission work there. And I felt God speak to me about coming back as a son to this nation. And uh, we arrived eight years ago at Watford Junction with two suitcases and 18 months. My my, my one son was three, the other was 18 months old. And we came to Plander Church and we've had a great adventure in the last eight years. And uh, that's a praise of my life, the last 44 years. And I, I really just want to say thank you to Chris and to Felicity for inviting me to preach this morning and to share in this amazing celebration with you. Uh, 20 years of God's faithfulness, 20 years of God's favor on you. And uh, as a church, represent, uh, representing our church, I would like to just say thank you very, very much to you as a church. Because I don't know if you know this, but while we were waiting to get into our venue, Chris opened the vineyard to us regularly. And we came and had some of our leaders training meetings here and a number of other things. I want to thank you for that. You sowed into our building fund. I don't know if you even know that. I want to say thank you. I really, really appreciate your generosity, your warmth, your openness, and welcoming us into this community. Is that all right? Uh, just to say, if the glare on my head uh, irritates you, please just put some sunglasses on. I won't be offended at all. It happens regularly, all right? Isn't it amazing to see and to be part of the establishing of the church? I... I am amazed at the hand of God in my own life and how he's transformed me and how he's led me in a completely different direction to what I was going. I'm so grateful for his grace. We sang about his grace this morning. And I just want to, in a sense, celebrate with you your last 20 years and in a, in a sense also try and anticipate something of the next 20 years and to encourage you in a very simple thing that God has been doing in my own life. And I, I want to just say I'm, I am a pilgrim on a journey and I've only really just started understanding some of the things that I, I want to share with you this morning. But um, for those of you that have been involved in church life, I recently had a friend of mine share the story with me. Uh, he, had a, he had planted a church and started a church and uh, the auditor who had been auditing their books phoned him in a concerned manner. And... Um, he began asking how many, how big the church grounds were, and slightly bemused, my friend asked him why he needed to know, because the church grounds were relatively small, and there was a car park and a few shrubs and bushes, and that was just the confirmation that the auditor needed, that he was, he was absolutely convinced someone had been siphoning off large sums of money out of the church accounts, and my friend was stunned, and he said, well, why do you think that? I mean, what gives you... Reason. So he said, well, you've spent thousands and thousands of pounds on church plants. You don't get it. Yeah. So sometimes our language is like a little bit uh, misleading. All right. Church planting. But I believe that the, the local church, I believe the local church is God's first 
and God's primary plan for reaching and discipling the nations. I believe it's his primary plan. I believe if politics could have solved the problems of the UK, it would have done so already. I believe if education could solve all the problems of the United Kingdom, it would have done so already. I believe if just money could solve the problems of the United Kingdom, it would have done so already. I believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the total answer to man's total need. And I believe as God's church, we are guardians and custodians of that precious, precious truth. And over the last uh, couple of years, there have been many prophetic voices around the nations of the world, foretelling a shaking and a sifting upon the church of God all across the world. And as I've spoken to different leaders in different flows, I've just become more and more aware of the evidence of that. And people in churches all experiencing the effects of God unraveling some things, if I could call it scaffolding, God unraveling some scaffolding in churches that has been there for years and sometimes ages. And it's now begun to lose its relevance and lose its effectiveness. And I'd like to speak to you this morning. The title of my message is simply this, digging the well of the gospel. Digging the well of the gospel in your own life. And uh, there's a, a writer, a theologian called Christian Swartz. He's a German church growth researcher. And he suggests that we are in the era of a third reformation. And he says this, the first reformation took place in the 16th century when Martin Luther fought for the rediscovery of salvation by faith. The centrality of grace and of scripture. It was recognized as a reformation of theology. The second reformation, according to Swartz, occurred in the 18th century when personal intimacy with God was rediscovered. He calls this a reformation of spirituality. And now what is upon us in this third reformation is a reformation of structure or how we actually do church. The first reformation brought a reformation of theology, yet it failed to affect the major practices of churches. This new reformation, however, will be a complete overhaul and upheaval of how we have done church for the past 1700 years. This reformation promises to be more like a revolution in its passion to alter how the church functions, both in its life and its mission. I love those last two lines. This reformation promises to be more like a revolution in its passion to alter how the church functions, both in its life and its mission. And I found leading this, our church for the last eight years that sometimes we can become so obsessed with the how of church, how we do church, that we forget the why. <laughs> and God is jealous over the message of His Son. God is absolutely jealous over the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. And the message of Jesus needs to become the song in our hearts. I'm, I'm a musician by, by training and I love music. And I found this over the last uh, series of years. There are many songs in people's hearts. You can have the song of your marriage in your heart. 
You can have the song of this local church in your heart. You can have the song of church planting in your heart. And those are all good things and wonderful things. But can I suggest to you this morning that the primary song that needs to beat in your and my heart above any other is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that Jesus came to save sinners. Let that song beat in us. Let that song be uh, like coffee percolating over and over and over. That aroma rise in our lives. The song of the gospel of Jesus. This reformation promises to be more like a revolution in its passion to alter how the church functions, both in its life and its mission. A friend of mine told me the story of an American cattle rancher that once visited Australia to compare farming methods. And he was amazed at the obvious difference between how they farmed in Australia and how they did it in the States. And so, where he came from in the, in the U.S., cattle were branded and were kept in allocated areas with fences. Whereas in Australia, there were no fences to be seen anywhere. And so he asked this rancher, he said, well, how do you keep your cattle in the outback here? And uh, how do you stop them from wandering into the next farm? <laughs> there are no fences. And the Australian, in typical fashion, he just said to him, out here in the outback, we don't put up fences, we dig wells. Out here in the outback, we don't put up fences, we dig wells. I believe that the one thing that God is calling for in his church is the digging of personal wells of revelation. Of who Jesus is, primarily, And that we are saturated in his wonderful good news to each of us and for the dying world in which he's called us to minister. And instead of responding in the life of the church out of obligation, because there are fences in place, and sometimes those fences can be unspoken things, unspoken expectations, perhaps glass partitions that exist in the church, instead of responding out of fences being in place, I believe God wants people to rise up that respond out of devotion, that respond out of personal conviction, that respond out of obedient passion because the wells in their own life have been dug and have been nurtured. And can I say to you, as I've just enjoyed coming and meeting Chris and being in a small way, just seeing something of your journey, that's obvious that those wells are in place. I want to encourage you for the next 20 years, can you dig them a little deeper? Can you in your own life Rediscover a passion for Jesus that is un- unprecedented in your own life? I believe something of the destiny of this church and the future 20 years depends on a, a deeper and deeper reality in each of your lives individually of who Jesus is for you. And if that begins to grip us and pulse in our hearts and transform us, I, I want Jesus to become bigger and bigger on the inside of me. Because when Jesus is big on the inside of you, you can live an extraordinary life. <laughs> uh, sorry, I am, in, I am an intense person, all right? So I do speak loudly, so sound man, please just turn me down if you need to. But I've been thinking about this. Why did the Holy Spirit leave us four Gospels in one book of Acts? And in my life, I've been concerned and consumed with planting churches because I, that's what I've given myself to do. But I'm convinced of this more and more, that the reason why Paul did what he did was not that he had a, an amazing strategy. 
He was consumed from the inside out with a love for Jesus. That's what enabled him to do the extraordinary things that he did. He wanted to go to the ends of the earth. And for him, the ends of the earth was Spain. For us, it's a two-hour flight on EasyJet anywhere to Spain. But for Paul, it was the ends of the earth. He wanted to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. And that's why he lived the way he did. Amen? It's personal conviction. It's a, it's a passion. Uh, I had uh, someone text me this week with this hard-hitting quote from some, someone who just said this. If you, are, if you are here unfaithfully with us, you are causing us terrible damage. If you are here unfaithfully with us, you are causing us terrible damage. In other words, if who we are is not the real us, the authentic self, then we are building with deception, we are building with facades, and it's only a matter of time before niceness and diplomacy gives way to anger, exhaustion, the decay of disappointment, and ultimately desertion. My friends, I'm trying to encourage you with this. I want to say in this hour, it's 21st century where we're living right now, what is most needed in churches, as you look to the next 20 years for your own church, what is most needed is the Spirit of Jesus. Grace and truth. And those things bring these gospel jewels, gentle power, open-hearted ministry, integrity, True unity, healthy disagreement at times, but courage, conviction, and a recognition of diverse lives and callings and of a persevering covenant with each other. That's what the next 20 years needs. Amen? You see, the center of this apostolic journey, if I made reference to the book of Acts, the center of of the apostolic journey in the book of Acts is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I did a little word search. The word gospel in the New Testament is used 91 times. Of those 91 times, it is mentioned 74 times by Paul. Gospel, the word gospel, the good news. And in Romans 1, we see that the gospel means the breaking in of the kingdom of God. And for Paul, that was a subversive thing because he was saying the kingdom is breaking into this Roman culture in which he was immersed. And for me, that's the wonderful thing about the gospel. You can't stop it. Once the good news is out, it's subversive. It gets into the culture. It transforms people's lives, their values, how they see themselves. It transforms their marriages, their parenting. The gospel is radical. And I don't know about you, but maybe you've got, I'm sure you've got your own story of how God has transformed your life. And see, well, I've got some friends here this morning, Murray and Eleanor. They got saved a couple of years ago, and uh, God has radically transformed their lives. That's the good news. That's the gospel. It's subversive. It's powerful. David Bosch is a theologian, and he asks this question. He says this. Are we a gospel-centered mission around which we are building community? Or are we a community of relationships around which we are trying to build on gospel-centered mission? Now that is a very good question. You see, when the gospel is at the center of all that we do, many other things become flexible so the gospel can get out there. We make decisions around what is good for the gospel. And when, I, when the gospel is at the center, I believe these kind of words become part of our vocabulary. Radical, fluid, organic, 
passionate. You see, Paul uses a number of phrases when he talks about the gospel. He says, the gospel. In other words, the eternal truth, the unchanging truth of the gospel. And then Paul uses another phrase. He says, my gospel. In other words, it's not just eternal out there truth. It's become personal. It's become revelation to him. It's transforming him from the inside. And then he speaks about our gospel. In other words, all of us who've had this revelation, this eternal truth become personal to us. We, co- we collaborate around the gospel so that we can get the good news out there and touch the world. The gospel, my gospel, our gospel. He also uses these phrases, Paul. He says, we are saved by the gospel. We are saved into the gospel. We are saved for the gospel. I love that delirious song. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Quoting Romans. Why? For it's the power of God for salvation to all who would believe. Amen? I believe this vineyard, I want to speak this over you, that a gospel-centered community is unstoppable. A gospel-centered community is unstoppable. When the gospel is transforming you from the inside out, your life becomes radical and focused and living for other people automatically. Don't have to have any fence in place when there's a revelation of the gospel in your life. Is this okay, guys? Are you with me? I'm feeling a little... uh, Okay, good. Colossians 1 verse 6 says this. Of this you have heard before in the word of God, the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, and it's bearing fruit and growing as it also does amongst you. Can Can I suggest to you this morning, my friends, that we never allow the message of the gospel to grow static in us. Can I, can I just ask you, for those of you that got, got saved, okay, I'm, I'm just uh, exposing some of my, theo- of my theological roots. If you come from a reformed background, you got saved. If you come from a menian background, you found God. Whatever your persuasion is this morning, I don't mind that moment where you met with God. Can you remember the wonder of that moment? Can you just, for a moment, take yourself back in your life to when you first met Jesus and that amazing revelation of His grace and His goodness flooded over you and radically transformed your life? I want to suggest for the next 20 years that we need to be living continually in the wonder of that moment. Not that we, not that we don't mature and grow, but we remember the wonder of what Jesus did for us. Why? Because when you remember what the wonder of Jesus did for you, it's easy to speak of the wonder of Jesus for others. You want them to see something of Christ. When you forget that and it becomes dull and becomes boring and, oh, that happened to me a long time ago, I'm not going to speak of the wonder of Jesus to other people. Paul says, we, ha- we have been saved. That moment we were justified. Paul says we are being saved. Why does he say that? Because for Paul, the, the gospel was active in his life. It was transforming him daily. And then he says, we will be saved one day. In other words, we live in the tension of what has happened, what is, it, what is right now, what is still to be. We will be glorified one day when Jesus comes and takes us to be with him. Are you with me? The wonder of the gospel. Tim Keller, an American theologian, he says this. He says, the gospel sets the agenda for the apostolic. Christianity is about going. It's about faith. It's about a life of living and moving ahead. 
But the agenda of the apostolic is set by the gospel. Our Christology, our revelation of Jesus, should be at the center and be centered around the person of Jesus. But the gospel is our mission, and the gospel is our message. The gospel is our mission, and the gospel is our message. Can I ask you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15? We're going to read a portion of scripture for those of you that got your Bibles. And I'm going to make some comments out of that, and then we're done. All right? 1 Corinthians 15. I'm reading out of the NIV version. Now, brothers, and for the ladies in the audience, the Greek there actually is brothers and sisters, so please don't feel left out, all right? It says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word that I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture, that he was buried and then was raised on the third day, according to the scripture, And that he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, although some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least... Of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, This is what we preached, and this is what we believed. The gospel. We're talking about the gospel at the center, the gospel as the priority, the gospel that has got us this far so far, and the gospel that was going to take us the next 20 years. All right? The gospel. Digging the well of the gospel in your life. Can I suggest to you there are 10 priorities that Paul aligns himself around in this gospel priority? Right in building the local church. Can I give these to you and uh, trust that God will speak to you out of them? The first is this, out of 1 Corinthians 15. The gospel is Christological. One. It's Christological. In other words, it's Christ-centered. In other words, the gospel has not been preached if Jesus and his work has not been proclaimed. Can I just remind you of some things? And we could quote a whole lot of things this morning. But Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to you and me. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave his community, all that was comfortable and all that was familiar to him and to go out into a void, not knowing where he was going and to create a new people for for God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac who was not just offered up by his father on the mountain, but was truly sacrificed for us. And God said to Abraham, now that I know, I know that you love me because you did not withhold your son from me, your only son whom you love. Now we can look at God. 
taking his son up the mountain and sacrificing him and say, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son from us, your one and only son that you love. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and he mediates a new covenant for us. Jesus is the real rock. Jesus is the real Passover lamb. Innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so that the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple. He's the true prophet. He's the true priest. He's the true king. He's the true sacrifice. He's the true lamb. He's the true light. He's the true bed. Jesus The gospel is Christological. It is Christ-centered. Two, it's theological. The gospel is theological. It's all about God. It's about His story. Amen? It's about Him. So, for God so loved the world that He gave. Why? To satisfy His wrath and His anger. and And we sang about some of those things this morning in our songs. The gospel is theological. Thirdly, it's biblical, as we read those, those verses out of 1 Corinthians 15. In verse 3, it says that Jesus died and was raised according to the Scripture. And it says that a number of times. It says according to the Scripture. And we read in Romans chapter 1 that that was anticipated by the previous generations in the Old Testament. That what Jesus came to do would be fulfilled according to the Scripture. It is biblical. The gospel is biblical. Fourthly, the gospel is apostolic. The gospel draws attention to those who have proclaimed it. And there's an understanding of our Ephesians 4 gifts are there to encourage and build the church in the gospel. There's a gathering around the gospel and there's a sending out because of the gospel. And what does Paul spend a whole lot of time challenging the church with? The church with. He says, some of you are of Apollos, some of you are Paul, some of you are of Cephas. And he says, but that's the, wrong, that's the wrong priority. The priority is not about the personalities who proclaim the gospel. The priority is around Jesus. It's about Him. It's not about us. It's not about the messengers. It's about the message, the good news of Jesus. Amen. Five, it's grace-empowered. The gospel is grace-empowered. I am so grateful for the grace of God in my life. We are saved, we are equipped, and we are commissioned by grace for the gospel. And my friends, the good news of grace is not a, is not a message for laziness. It's not a message for being sloppy in the kingdom. Paul says, and we read it ourselves, he said, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God living on the inside of me. When Jesus is growing increasingly big on the inside of you, you live an increasingly abnormal life. You with me? You give yourself to him in a a complete way. That's That's not hard. That's not striving for salvation. That's responding and saying, God, because of this amazing grace that you've poured out on me, I gladly give all that I am. My time, my talent, my treasure, everything I have, God, is yours. You give me life. I'm so grateful, Lord. Six. It It is historical. And if I can just reread some of those verses. It says, I received... Uh, Sorry, for I delivered you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to the five hundred 
brothers at one time, etc., etc. And then he says, last of all, as to one untimely born, abnormally born, he appeared also to me. My friends, the gospel, there's a timeline in history. The gospel did not occur in obscurity. It's a documented factual reality of history. It is historical. It is personal. The gospel, sixthly or seventhly, is personal. Verse 2 says, you were saved. And I love this. Someone told me this. I don't know who it, who it was. But someone said this. God does not have any grandchildren. He only has children. He only has sons and daughters. <laughs> That's wonderful, isn't it? Sons and daughters. And when we read in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul speaking, I love what he says. I'm going to just accent I in this phrase. Because this is how personal it is for Paul, this gospel that he's proclaiming, this eternal truth. He says this. I thank God. Who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of the Lord Jesus overflowed for me. With the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of which I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that is in me. Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe him in, it, in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory Forever. My friends, is the gospel personal for you? I said it before, I'm going to say it again. Something of the destiny of this church for the next 20 years is locked up in that simple truth that the gospel needs to become personal for you. The housewife sitting in the back row, the, the businessman sitting in the front row, the musician, the student, the gospel needs to become personal revelation in an ever-increasing, growing way from the inside out for you. And something of the destiny and the future of this church is locked up in that becoming reality. I'm not trying to put any pressure on you. I'm just trying to encourage you. Let Jesus get bigger on the inside of you. I love that Hillsong song. From the inside out, that song. You know that song? Oh man, I, whenever I sing that song, I weep because that, that is the grace of God transforming us from the inside out, growing large on the inside of us. You see, the gospel is not just meant to be a mild improvement on our personality. It's not just meant to improve you incrementally. <laughs> I love, a friend of mine says this, he says, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. Jesus came to make dead people alive. That's what Jesus came to do. Paul says it offers hope to him, the worst of sinners. The worst of sinners. I don't care what you've done, the grace of God is bigger. We've seen some people come out of amazing things in their lives in the, in the last eight years. And you know what? Jesus, the gospel of Jesus is always, always stronger than your history or your past. The blood of Jesus satisfies God absolutely. Had some visitors come a couple of weeks ago. We had a guy saved in our church a couple of months ago. He's got a background of 
drug abuse, he's got a background, he's been in jail for five years, he's smoking a cigarette outside the church. This couple come, they're visiting. The guy's uncomfortable, he's sitting in his car. So this young man goes up to him and says, Bud, what's the matter? Why don't you come inside? He says, I don't know. He says, you know, I've just been come out of jail. I've been addicted to drugs. I don't know if this church is going to love me. So this young man says to him, Bud, I've just come out of jail and uh, I've had a history of drug abuse. And you know what? Jesus is the center of all things and these people are going to love you. Come inside. The gospel is more powerful than anything of your history. God's more concerned about your future than your past. Amen. I'm so glad about that. J.R. Packer says this. He says, to understand grace, you need to understand two things. How great your debt is. And two, the magnitude of the provision of God for your life. And then you can respond and believe that Jesus died the death that you should have died. And because he did that, we live a pretty good life. Amen. And some are trying to change the gospel in response to to misunderstood distortions of legalistic moralizing and easy believing licentiousness. My friends, we've got to get back to the truth. The gospel is at the center. It keeps us free from legalism on the one side. It keeps us free from licentiousness on the other. It's a way of grace. I am trying to land. I'll land in the next two minutes. Point number eight, it's universal. It's universal. The gospel is universal. Death came into the world through the first Adam and life comes into the world through last Adam, Jesus. He makes all who believe alive. No exceptions. And we know too that the gospel shall be preached to all all mankind before the end can come. The gospel is universal. Point number nine, it's eschatological, fancy theological word. Just means to do with the end times. The gospel, we read in verse 23 of that uh, chapter, the gospel wraps up all of human history in the consummation of the bride and the glorifying of those that have been saved by the gospel. It wraps up all of history. Point number 10, it's supernatural. It's supernatural. Acts 4.33 encourages us to testify to the resurrection of Jesus and it says signs and wonders excuse me, will follow those who preach the gospel of Jesus. Can I suggest to you this morning the simple little thing? That signs and wonders are the dinner bell. They're not the main meal. Signs and wonders are the dinner bell. They're not the main meal. The, the gospel is the precedent and the foundation for the demonstration of the Spirit's power. It's a simple powerful message that changes not only our lives but our eternal destiny as well through the same power that raised Jesus from the dead so can I just say to you vineyard church dearly loved of God Jesus is the central personality of God's story from creation through the fall in redemption and at ultimately the restoration of all things. And we are called to preach the good news to the cities so that they might receive the message of grace. And, the ch- and we are called to preach at the same time to the church that they might be equipped. Gospel preaching informs the, forma- it, 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 it informs the formation of the church. And when we preach the gospel, the church grows and people are saved. And I know in a sense I am preaching to the choir, but I want to encourage you in these things. And can I conclude with one last quote? He has a quote of an amazing English gentleman. He said this in 1947. 
During the next few decades, there will be two distinct moves of the Holy Spirit across the church in Great Britain. The first move will affect every church that is open to receive it and will be characterized by the restoration of the baptism and gifts of the Holy Spirit. The second move of the Holy Spirit will result in people leaving historic churches and planting new churches. In the duration of each of these moves, the people who are involved will say, this is a great revival. But the Lord says, no, neither is this the great revival, but both are steps towards it. When the new church phase is on the way and there will be evidence in the churches of something that has not been seen before, a coming together of those with an emphasis on the word and those with an emphasis on the spirit. When the word and the spirit come together, there will be the biggest move of the Holy Spirit that the nations and indeed the world has ever seen. It will mark the beginning of a revival that will eclipse anything that has been witnessed within these shores, even the Wesleyan and Welsh revivals of former years. The outpouring of God's Spirit will flow over from the UK to mainland Europe, and from there will begin a missionary move to the ends of the earth. Smith Swiggleworth prophesied that in 1947. I'm delighted. I think we're living in something of that third wave. I want to encourage you, Vineyard, let the Word and the Spirit come together in you in power. That is what it's going to take us into the next 20 years. Those that dwell in the world richly, those that dwell in the Spirit richly, powerfully coming together and releasing life into every community that we touch. May God delight you. May God remind you of the wonderful good news of His Son, Jesus, and that you won't know the bounds of what He can do in you and through you into this community and to this nation. May God bless you. Thank you very much.